following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. The Book of Ruth. Uh, the German poet uh, Goethe, who is not a believer, he's, I think, an atheist, nevertheless an expert in human literature, spoke of the Book of Ruth this way. He says, it is the loveliest complete work on a small scale. The Biblical Literature Journal says this about the book of Ruth, it is a testament to the enduring power of storytelling, blending simplicity and depth to convey a profound and beautiful tale that resonates with readers across generations. And then more recently, the Modern Language Review says this, Ruth's narrative unfolds with a delicate yet powerful prose creating an enduring work of literature that resonates with readers due to its universal themes and timeless beauty. And so what we're about to study is considered by many to be one of the finest pieces of literature ever known to man. The outline for our study will be as follows. First, we'll quickly consider its place in the canon. Where do we find this book? It's not a very large book, and sometimes uh, it's hard for even Christians to find in their Bibles. Where is it located? Secondly, its author and date. Who wrote Ruth? When was it written? Uh, Thirdly, its form, structure, and plot. And then fourthly, some key terms and timeless truths that we can draw from this book. So first, then, its place in the canon. Now, in the Protestant canon, the Bible that most of us have brought to church this morning, uh, Ruth is located among the historical books after the book of Judges, and in large part because of its historical setting. So the time when the story is set is, according to verse 1, in the days of the judges. And that's why it's placed there in our Protestant canon. However, in the Jewish canon, also known as the Tanakh, the Jewish canon is tripartite, the first part being the books of Moses, the Torah, the second part being the prophets, which include historical books, uh, the Nebaim, and then the third part would be the writings, the Kethuvim, And uh, Ruth would be among the third section, the writings. In some collections, Ruth is placed first among the writings. And some believe that is because Ruth serves to remind post-exilic Israelites that God has not forgotten his covenant promise even in the darkest days. And we're going to see that the book of Ruth really does serve to remind God's people of his faithfulness to the Abrahamic promise. It's also found after the book of Proverbs in the writings because Ruth is a virtuous woman. And remember, that's how Proverbs ends. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Uh, And Ruth exemplifies that. Maybe also because it's theology, that is, God rewards those who live godly lives, corresponds to that found in the book of Proverbs. And then it's also found after the Song of Songs, because 
the love story of Boaz and Ruth illustrate the kind of love found in the song of songs or Song of Solomon, as many of you may know it. So that's where it's found in the canon. In terms of its author and date, the book is actually anonymous. So it doesn't start off like Paul's epistles, naming the author. Um, According to Jewish Talmudic tradition, and the Talmud is basically like an Aramaic, Aramaic paraphrase, which is the language that Jews spoke later in their history. It's an Aramaic paraphrase of the Old Testament. According to this tradition, Samuel wrote the book which bears his name and the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. Now, it's possible that Samuel authored the core of the book, but most scholars believe someone later than Samuel composed the book as it stands because its epilogue assumes Davidic kingship. There's a little genealogy that goes, uh, that includes Ruth and Boaz and then traces itself all the way to King David. And of course, Samuel died before David was actually crowned king. And so, um, some modern scholars argue for an exilic or post-exilic date that would put it quite late, but the majority of conservative scholars believe it was written during the reign of David or during the reign of Solomon. Let's talk a little bit about its form and structure and its plot. So... Uh, what, what kind of genre, what style of literature is Ruth? Well, basically, it's historical narrative. Um, it does include one poem. Uh, we're going to read this in a few moments. It's Lu- uh, Ruth's Pledge of Loyalty to Naomi, very beautiful poem in chapter 1. And then it also includes, at the very end, as I alluded to already, a genealogy, basically giving us David's family tree, from Perez to David through Ruth and Boaz. The author employs several literary techniques throughout the book. There's foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is a technique where you have subtle hints earlier in the story that point to events fulfilled later in the story. And in particular, in the book of Ruth, you have uh, many little prayers which, a little later in the story, are answered. And so the author is helping the reader anticipate later events by that foreshadowing. There's some irony or reversal of fortunes. So you start off with famine, and then you go to fruitfulness. You start off with bitterness, which turns to joy, and then you go from destitution to redemption. And then there's a lot of dialogue and characterization. About two-thirds of the narrative is dialogue through which the author reveals to us the personality, the motivations, and the virtues of the main characters. So much more dialogue than action. Okay, this is not like an action book per se, but it's more of a book where you have the characters speaking to one another. The book can be divided up into four sections or scenes. Try to think of a play. So you got scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four. Each of these more or less correspond to the four chapters. 
And each of the scenes are set in a different location. Now, I thought about having us read the entire book. After all, it's only four chapters. Uh, and I sent out a note, I don't know if anybody got it, encouraging uh, you guys to read it. And I thought, well, I don't know if everybody will get that. Or how many of you read through the whole book? Okay, well, that's pretty good. Uh, but in any case, I'm not going to read it. It takes 15 minutes to read it. And so that would take up all of our time. But let me just sort of summarize each of these sections. So first of all, you've got scene one, and it's set in the country of Moab. So you've got this famine uh, in Bethlehem, which ironically means, my students, house of bread, okay, or house of food. And yet you've got a famine there. And this leads Elimelech, whose name means... Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, my God. My God is Melech, king. Okay, my God is king. And, uh, and Naomi, her name means pleasant, and their two boys, Malon and Kilion, which means something like pining away and sickly or something like that, very dreary names. Maybe they were sick little children when they were young. Uh, so they migrate to Moab. Two tragedies follow. First of all, Elimelech dies, and so Naomi is there for a widow. And then next, Naomi's two sons die, leaving their Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, widows. Overcome with sorrow, Naomi urges her daughters-in-law to return to their families. Orpah obliges, but Ruth determines to remain with Naomi and declares her loyal devotion. Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. A very beautiful statement of commitment to her mother-in-law. So that's basically scene one. And then scene two shifts to the fields of Boaz. So they return to Bethlehem. Ruth heads out into the barley fields to glean food for herself and Naomi. And she ends up, she just by chance happens to glean in the fields of Boaz, who in turn happens to be one of Naomi's close relatives. And this is a very key part of the story. Boaz takes note of Ruth's devotion to Naomi, her virtuous character. As a result, he's kind and generous towards Ruth. He instructs his workers not only not to bother her, but to kind of allow some of the grain to spill out as they're, as they're harvesting so that Ruth can glean some extra. Uh, and uh, Naomi, the mother-in-law, immediately recognizes the significance of Boaz's kindness, and she remembers that he's a potential kinsman redeemer, one who could help her and Ruth in their desperate situation. And so that sets us up for scene Three, at the threshing floor of Boaz. Naomi devises a daring plan for Ruth to present herself as a potential bride to Boaz at the threshing floor. And so Ruth is going to carefully follow her instructions. And there, she symbolically communicates to Boaz her desire for him to play the part of a kinsman redeemer. Um, if anybody ever asks you, parent... Maybe one of your daughters. Is it okay for a woman ever to propose to a man? Well, this is what happens here in the story of Ruth. 
she actually proposes to Boaz. That wasn't the conventional thing to do, but she was bold in faith and she does that. And so Boaz is pleasantly surprised by her actions. He enthusiastically desires to fulfill her wish. However, he acknowledges another relative with a closer claim. So you can see right there a bit of tension reintroduced. You're all excited. The need is going to be met. And then, well, there's still an obstacle in the way. Nevertheless, he assures Ruth that he will resolve the matter in the morning in hopes that the right of redemption may pass to him. Which brings us to scene four, chapter four at the city gates of Bethlehem. So Boaz summons the closer relative to the city gate where men conduct official business. He, inf he informs the unnamed relative that Naomi's property is for sale. He asks whether he'll perform the role of a redeemer. At first, the relative agrees. He says, of course, I'll purchase the property. But then he learns that if he does that, he must also marry Ruth. He must sire children with her. And then those children will eventually inherit the property. So he declines the offer. This paves the way for Boaz, who redeems Naomi's land, who marries Ruth. They then have a son whom they name Obed, which means servant. And as it turns out, this Obed becomes the grandfather of King David. So that is the story in the book of Ruth. Now its plot is pretty simple and straightforward, as you probably could deduce. Um, in terms of its introduction, also known, when you're studying the whole issue of a story plot, its exposition, you have the initial setting, famine in Bethlehem. You have the main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and then later, uh, chapter 2, Boaz is introduced. The central conflict is basically the idea of destitution. Do not call me Naomi, call me bitter. That's what Mara means, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. So she loses her husband, she loses her two sons, and to appreciate that tension, you have to realize that it's not simply bereavement that is the conflict in view, but rather in that culture, it meant the loss of the family name and the family inheritance. So she was really desperately destitute. And then we have the rising action, the development of the plot. So you have contributions towards a resolution. First of all, you have Ruth's faith and loyalty towards Naomi. That immediately gives the reader some hope. There's a bit of a bright spot in this very dark first scene where Ruth expresses her loyal love to her mother-in-law. And then, chapter 2, you see Boaz's kindness and generosity towards Ruth. So at the very least, by that point, you realize that at least they're going to be fed and taken care of at some level. Then, thirdly, you have Naomi's resourcefulness in soliciting Boaz for redemption through Ruth. Rather than soliciting him directly, she does it through her daughter-in-law in a very very clever, clever in a positive sense way. And then fourth, and as we're going to see, this is really the, you know, the highlight here, the, 
uh, central part of the story. You have Ruth's daring act of faith in presenting herself to Boaz for marriage and proposing to him. And then finally, you have Boaz's speedy and shrewd securing of the right of redemption. So those are all contributions towards the resolution. There are also, though, along the way, challenges to the resolution. You have the uncertainty whether there exists a kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth, at least uh, at the early part of the story. We don't know that. So when you get done with chapter 1, you basically conclude that these two women are hopeless, humanly speaking. Okay, because Naomi's not going to have get married, probably. She's older. She's probably not going to have a child, and Ruth's probably not going to wait around for that child. Then you also have the uncertainty. I mean, once, the, once you realize that Boaz is in the picture, he is a potential kinsman redeemer, but you still don't know whether or not he wants to fulfill that role. Because as we're going to see, there's an element of, of self-sacrifice that the kinsman redeemer has to be willing to show. And then thirdly, you have the uncertainty of whether Boaz can even fulfill the role once you learn that he wants to do it. We still don't know he can do it because the other redeemer may step in and do it instead. Okay? So there's, there's these challenges to the resolution and they serve to sort of increase the tension. That's part of what makes the story so enjoyable. Then you have the climax. So the tension builds up until chapter 3. Ruth approaches Boaz on the threshing floor and covers his feet, lies down. When he awakes, she asks him to cover her with his robe. And in doing so, she symbolically expresses her desire for Boaz to fulfill the Leveret marriage custom, whereby he will marry the widow of a deceased family member to perpetuate the family name and inheritance. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, you see that's what exactly God did for Israel. He, he threw his skirt, as it were, his, the fringe of his robe over Israel, which was a symbolic way of saying that he married her. All right. And so Boaz acknowledges Ruth's virtuous character, her remarkable act of faith in seeking refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he hardly agrees to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. So that's really the climax. That's the high point of the story. And then you have the falling action. Uh, this is where the story, the resolution works its way out. Boaz sends Ruth home with a load of grain, immediately gets to work on securing the right of redemption. Thus, the loose ends are tied up, and the story moves towards a resolution. And the resolution eventually comes in chapter 4. Boaz secures the right of redemption, marries Ruth. They have a child. The family's name and inheritance are preserved. And even better, not only do we have the preservation of the name of Elimelech, but you have the preservation of the line of the promised offspring and a beautiful type and shadow of a greater redemption to come. And so that's why it's such a delightful story. Um, not only does it have a happy ending at a human level, but it has a happy ending at a very meta-biblical level because we see it as very key, uh, are, are, are fulfilling a very key place in the story of 
redemption. All right, some key terms and timeless truths. Somebody was telling me that the women actually studied the book of Ruth recently. So maybe I'll just kind of look out here and say, uh, somebody volunteer, what's, volunteer a key term in the book of Ruth. Ladies? It's okay, you don't have to be nervous. Or men? I mean... Okay, loyalty, the idea of loyalty. And there's a word we're going to look at, chesed, which is a key term that conveys that concept. Another word? Ms. Gonzalez is kind of cheating because I shared some of these things with her. Okay, no other guesses? Under the wings. Okay, under the wings, that's right. That's uh, stated in uh, chapter 2, I think, uh, or maybe it's chapter 3. No, chapter 2. And then later on, when, uh, when Ruth asked Boaz to throw his robe over her, uh, it's a different term, but the two terms are related, the wing and the robe. And so, in a sense, um, she's asking Boaz to sort of, in some sense, fulfill that prayer he made for her, uh, and uh, be Yahweh's instrument to take care of her. Well, let's consider some of these, <clears throat> all right? One term that you may not be aware of, it's the Hebrew word kayil. And kayil is a very flexible word. It just means something like capacity. It can mean capacity in the sense of wealth. It can mean capacity in the sense of courage or valor. Or it can mean capacity in the sense of virtue. Somebody has a lot of virtue. All right, it's, uh, it's used of uh, Boaz. First of all, in Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he's spoken of as a man of kayil. And the KJV translates it as a man of great wealth. The ESV is a worthy man. The Christian Standard Bible as a prominent man of noble character. So in a sense, you can tell these English versions are trying to draw in all of the ideas because as you read the story, it's clear he is a man of wealth, but he's also a man of godly character. It's used of Ruth. Boaz says to her, chapter 3, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman who is worthy, a worthy woman. <clears throat> and the Christian Standard Bible says a woman of noble character. And then later on, the people at the gate and the elders say to Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you achieve wealth, the NAS says. May you have standing in Ephrathah, the NIV. So this is a, a key word, and as we're going to see, one of the functions of Ruth is to put on display the beauty of a godly character. The word hesed, we already referred to, can mean kindness, mercy, the idea of covenant loyalty. Um, another related term, chen, is the word for favor or for grace. So each of these are used three times. Uh, Naomi prays 
Uh, may This is for her daughters. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So her daughters had been very loyal to her, very loving. May God do that to you also. Uh, and then in chapter 2, verse 20, she says to uh, her daughter-in-law, May he, speaking of Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, speaking of the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz says to Ruth, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. So there's a lot of, a lot of grace in this story. Uh, again, in chapter 2, verse 2, the word can. Uh, Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And then she says to Boaz, when she bows to the ground, why have I found favor in your eyes? And then she says again, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. So when you see these key words, you know that the author is trying to emphasize this concept of grace, of covenant loyalty. And as we're going to see, that's very important, especially in light of the setting of the book. These things took place when? In the days of the judges. Then you have thirdly, and this is the last word we'll consider, it's the word uh, ga'el, that's the verb, or go'el, that is the noun, meaning redeem or avenge. Or the noun can mean a kinsman redeemer. That is a family member who acts on behalf of his family, either redeeming or avenging. Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, this is in chapter 2, verse 2, the man Boaz is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So you have to be related in order to fulfill this role. Boaz says, this is in chapter 3, verse 9, who are you? Ruth answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, notice, by the way, this word is used in one of its forms, either verb or noun, 21 times in the book of Ruth. So this is probably the key term. That's why I said the book of Ruth is a delightful story of redemption. That's what this book is about. Okay, I'm not going to read all 21 verses, but we just have a sampling here. In chapter 4, verse 14, the woman, or the women said to Naomi, this is after they get married, Ruth and Boaz, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. Okay? So those are the key terms. Uh, now, um, it's important to remember, especially as you look at the term goel, that it's very much tied to the concept of the leveret marriage. And this kind of marriage serves as a safeguard to a family name and associated inheritance. So in the event of a man's death, the duty of supporting his widow, any potential offspring falls to the man nearest uh, as his relative, a brother. You see this in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Typically, the deceased husband's 
uh, living brother was anticipated to enter into a leveret marriage with a widow. In cases where the widow had no children, the firstborn from this new union would be acknowledged as a child of the deceased, thereby perpetuating the name and inheritance of the one who had passed away. All right, so, and again, remember theologically that the perpetuation of one's name, uh, one's membership in the covenant family, and the perpetuation of one's inheritance in the promised land was extremely important to the Israelites. Now, with all of that in view, what are some timeless truths? Well, first of all, we see God at work in the darkest of days. The book begins, in the days when the judges ruled. And those of you familiar with the book of Judges know it was a time of decadence and widespread apostasy. In fact, there's a key phrase in the book, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, now I think you all would agree, <laughs> uh, our day resembles the days of the judges. Our fellow citizens, everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes, pursuing his own pleasure, no regard for God. And in such a setting, you and I as Christians are often tempted to give in to the Elijah syndrome. Lord, we alone are left. We're the only ones. And yet... I think God would respond to us the way he responded to Elijah. I still have in Israel 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God would say, I am still at work, even in the darkest of days. And this is God's word to us in the book of Ruth. Even when the days are dark and unbelief is all around us, God is still at work in the lives of his people. In fact, as the epilogue teaches us, and perhaps even more importantly, God is preserving the promised offspring. God is ensuring that his plan of redemption for the human race will not be derailed. And that ought to be a great encouragement for us. Secondly, by way of timeless truth, we see God working in the book of Ruth through the common and ordinary so in one sense, Ruth is not about great people or great events. Except for the mention of David in the epilogue, there's no reference to kings or warriors or prophets or wise men or philosophers. There's no battles that are being fought. There's no treaties being ratified. There's no uh, you know, great prophecies being given. There's no cities being built. But there's just common people doing common and ordinary things like gleaning and like threshing and like marrying and just simply trusting God and showing kindness to others. We may be tempted to think, brothers and sisters, that we're too insignificant for God to work through us. I know that recently I was thinking about the fact that I'm 60 years old, and I'm about to turn 61, and I don't know about you, but when I was a new Christian in my 20s and maybe early 30s, I kept dreaming about all these great exploits I would do for God and the great deeds I would accomplish, and 
all of that. And now that I'm 60, I'm realizing that it ain't going to happen. I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, a grain of sand, uh, uh, practically a nobody, and, and it's, you know, and, 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 but that's the way it is for most of us. We're just common, ordinary people. And yet, the story of Ruth reminds us that God often delights to work in and through such people to accomplish his purposes. As Paul put it, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, speaking to the Corinthians, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Okay, so let's take courage. God works through the common and ordinary. Thirdly, in the book of Ruth, we see the power of a godly character. We ask the question, what encouraged Ruth to forsake her home? To forsake the prospect, at least initially, of getting married. To cling to Naomi. To put her trust in the God of Israel. Well, ultimately, of course, it was God's grace that did that, right? But God works through means, and I suspect that Naomi's testimony had a part to play. Alexander White, in his uh, book on Bible characters, says, Naomi showed to those two Moabite women what a widowed wife and mother had to rest on in Israel. And one, at least, of her daughters-in-law laid the lesson and example well to heart. Yes, behind all the nobleness, steadfastness, beauty, and tenderness of Ruth, I see inspiring and sustaining and maturity it all the wise, chastened, weaned mind of one who was a mother in Israel and a widow indeed. And so as you read the chapter, you do get the impression, chapter 1, that both of the daughters-in-law were very impressed with Naomi. They loved her very much, and no doubt Naomi's testimony, her faith, even in spite of her loss, was part of what God used to inspire them. And what about this convert from paganism, Ruth? What led the citizens of Bethlehem to speak of Ruth as, quote, a woman of noble character. It wasn't like they went around saying that about everybody. And here they are saying it about a, a Moabite woman. What was it about Ruth? Well, the story tells us she was a hard worker, very diligent, very committed to care for her mother-in-law. She was known for her self-sacrifice. I mean, Boaz says it's remarkable that you left your family. You left your country to come care for Naomi. She was known for her kindness and her loyalty. Naomi says in chapter 1, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth famously says, Do not urge me to leave you. This is the poem I was telling you about. Or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And it's no wonder that the women of Bethlehem in chapter 4 would later say to Naomi, your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. 
Now that is saying a lot. Wouldn't you like to have a daughter or a daughter-in-law better than seven sons? And so she was known for that, her kindness, her loyalty. She was also known for her faith in God. Boaz highlights this. May Yahweh fully repay your work. May your wages be full from Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And this is a beautiful picture of a godly character. And hopefully, as you and I read the story, we're stimulated to be imitators of Naomi and Ruth. And even Boaz, I, we don't have time to consider his character as well, but he's a very godly man. But then fourthly and finally, we see a beautiful portrait of redemption. Um, as I noted earlier, the terms redeem, redeem, redeemer, redemption, those are main terms in Ruth. And so that's the main message of the book. A careful reading of the book reveals something about the need, scope, and nature of redemption. So think of the Old Testament much like you think of children's books where there's lots of pictures. And that's what God does. When you come to the New Testament, you've got the epistles of Paul that, where, where he's explaining what all the Old Testament pictures meant. But in the Old Testament, God teaches us largely by pictures. And so in this picture, we learn about the need for redemption. The conflict in the story's plot centers around Naomi's destitute condition, desperate need for a redeemer. And she doesn't just need a provider, okay? Because if she just needed a provider, the need would be met when we come to chapter 2. And, you know, Ruth is there gleaning in the fields. However, we need to remember the loss of her sons meant the loss of the family name and inheritance. And there was nothing worse in Israel to, than to have one's name blotted out of the registry of Israel and to lose your claim to the promised land. And so no wonder Naomi says, I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. So Naomi needs someone to do for her what she cannot do for herself. Brothers and sisters like Naomi, you and I have no lasting name or inheritance. Our sins have cut us off from the blessings of God. Like Naomi, we're helpless and hopeless. We need someone to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need a redeemer. We need someone to secure for us a lasting name and eternal inheritance. We also learn about the scope of redemption. It's not just about Naomi's redemption. It's about Ruth's redemption, and this is important. This is a Jewish book written for Jewish people, and yet the main character of this Jewish book is not a Jew. It's a Moabite. And remember, Moabites were the offspring of incest, the incest of Lot with his daughter. Moreover, because the Moabites enticed Israel to idolatry and immorality, they as a nation were cursed by God. And so Ruth would have been viewed by the average Israelite as a castaway, as beyond the pale of redemption. And yet, not only does Ruth partake of the same redemptive blessings that Naomi receives, but she enjoys the additional blessing of being one of the mothers in the line of the Messiah. In fact, as you know from Matthew chapter 1, God delights sometimes in 
using a woman who is outside the pale of Israel in order to be the mother of the Messiah, such as Tamar and Rahab, and then now here, Ruth. All right? So God is teaching us by way of practical application as he taught his people through the book of Ruth that redemption will include the Gentiles. He's reminding them that the Abrahamic blessing shall extend to, quote, all the families of the earth. And by the way, the Israelites needed to be reminded of this continually because they kept forgetting it. I mean, they had the Abrahamic promise in the law of Moses. All the families of the earth. But they kept thinking in terms of just us, just us, just us. And so the book of Ruth says, no, 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 no. No, God has a place too for the Gentiles. And then finally, we learn about the nature of redemption. We see, first of all, that redemption is all of grace. Naomi, Ruth contributed absolutely nothing to their redemption. Remember the hymn writer. All that he requires is to what? Feel your need of him. That's all they did. They felt their need and they asked for help. All right? Boaz did the work. He's the one who accomplished redemption. And so it is with, uh, with us. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation except to feel our need for Christ. And even that's a gift. We, we're told in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not our own doing. It is the gift of God. It's all of grace. Secondly, redemption is freely given. Now normally the leveret marriage would have been mandatory for an immediate brother of the deceased. Even he, according to Deuteronomy 25, could technically decline. Now he might be shamed. In other words, it, he would, might have been looked down on a little bit by the rest of the community if he declined, but he could technically do that if he wanted to. In the story of Ruth, we're only told that Boaz was a relative. Okay, it's not really clear whether or not he was a brother-in-law to Naomi. He certainly wasn't related to Ruth, not directly. So it doesn't appear that Boaz was absolutely obligated to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And yet, the story makes clear, Boaz was not just willing, but man, he was tripping over himself. He was eager. He was enthusiastic. Naomi sensed this and she tells Ruth, just be patient, my daughter. Until we hear what happens, the man will not rest until he has settled things today. Okay? He wanted to get it done immediately. All right? And that's important. Because, such it is in our case, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Christ says in another place, he says, I lay down my life of my own volition. It's not that the Father forced Jesus to do it. Jesus wanted to do it. And he wanted to do it with enthusiasm. Behold, it's written of me in the scroll of the book. Your law is within my heart, and I delight 
to do your will, O my God. All right? And so redemption is voluntarily, freely, enthusiastically given to those who seek it. And then thirdly, we're almost done. Redemption comes at a great cost. Okay, at first, the other kinsman seems willing to assume the role of redeemer. He says, okay, I'll go ahead and redeem. Because at that point, he thinks to himself, well, I buy the property. And that's going to cost me something, right? But then eventually, that property comes into my name, and I'm going to make money on it. And so I'll get a return. Plus, I'll kind of be looked at as a good guy because I helped this widow out. But then the moment he learns that he must also marry Ruth, have children, and then give that property over to the children to carry on the name of Elimelech, he changes his mind. Why? Because he doesn't want to make that sacrifice. He says, my own estate's going to be jeopardized. But Boaz is more than willing to make that sacrifice, knowing that when he buys that property, that property is not ultimately going to go to him per se, it's going to go to Malon to carry on the name of Elimelech through Ruth. All right? So he makes that sacrifice. And that's just an illustration of great kindness and generosity on his part. And in doing so, he provides a beautiful picture of Christ who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. As the Apostle Peter reminds us, um, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that we were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then fourthly and finally, redemption secures our inheritance. And what I want to just simply point out here, and and if you read the book, you saw this, Boaz makes sure everything is public and official and legal. He gathers 10 witnesses. He makes sure that they're, he, he keeps repeating over and over, you're all witnesses, you're all witnesses. And then they go on to say, we are witnesses. It's as if the writer's saying, legal, 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 official. And then the guy who declines it has to take off his shoe that was a symbol back then as if to say, this shoe will not set foot on that property. Okay, it is now yours. The property's yours. Everything's official. It's almost as if there's signatures and and imprimaturs making sure that that transaction was binding, was permanent, was secure. And so it is, the Apostle Peter tells us, according to his great mercy, God the Father caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Christ pays for it with his own blood. The Father confirms that he's accepted the transaction by raising Jesus from the dead. And thus, our inheritance is secure. Well, that is the story of the book of Ruth. There's some helpful resources. You can look those up later. I was going to end with questions. We're five minutes over, so I probably shouldn't do that. But feel free to come up afterwards if you have questions, 
and I'll address them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the book of Ruth. We pray that it would not just stimulate our intellect, that we would not just appreciate it as a beautiful story, but we would remember its divine revelation meant to uh, teach us spiritual truths and to affect the way that we live. And we pray your blessing on our time and our worship this morning. In in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.